Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 134, week 134, volume 134, number fucking 134. Hey, going guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Jason of Death Therapy and formerly of Becoming the Archetype, and that will be coming up later in the show. First things first, bit of feedback, bit of questions, bit of what's been going on. A lot of shares going on over the last couple of episodes, so thank you to everyone that's given us a share of the show. It means a lot to see that people are getting into the content and are enjoying the content. As a show that's not run by someone that is in a band or was in a band, as a show that's run by someone who's literally just like everyone listening, just a passionate heavy music loving dude, seeing that you guys enjoy what we do means the world. So guys, thank you again, as always, for everything you do for the show, whether that's listening, rating and reviewing or sharing, every bit helps and I'm grateful for all of you guys out there that get into the Mosh Zone. This show isn't possible without you guys, so give yourselves a pat on the back, love you, respect you, much appreciated. Enough of the ramblings, let's get into the main part of the show. This week I got to sit down with Jason of Death Therapy and formerly of Becoming the Archetype. First thing I got to say, thank you so very, very, very much dude for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Now giving a little bit of insight into how the show runs, occasionally there are shows that are recorded that sometimes there's technical issues Sometimes the computer plays up. This is a conversation that I had quite a while ago that I had some problems with keeping and I was able to recover it, so today we're publishing it. So let's talk about the bands that Jason's in or was in. Most people will know him from Becoming the Archetype Days. That band formed in 1999. Jason left in around 2011. While he was in the band, he released four albums. And the band stylistically wise, you'd say it's like a progressive death metal band with a Christian lyrical tinge. His new project, or his most recent project that he's currently in, Death Therapy, formed around 2016-17. They so far have two LPs and one EP. Jason is a man with a lot of passion, a lot of conviction, and a lot of experience in the industry. So it was great to get him on the show. I hope you enjoy this conversation. That chat with Jason is coming up now. I usually start with kind of the same question, which is, when you were growing up, do you remember an artist, not heavy, but just an artist that kind of opened your world to music being a thing in existence? Uh, Well, the very first artist that I can remember caring about was probably Garth Brooks. Was a uh, you know a country singer um, from the '90s, and um, I grew up in the southeast of the United States my whole life, and so country music's always been sort of the, the water that we swim in, like a fish. Um, but uh, the first time I really got into uh, you know wanting to write my own music or connect with music more deeply was when I discovered. Um, band called Five Iron Frenzy, and uh, Five Iron Frenzy is one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, Got to see them in concert lots and lots of times, 
got to join them on stage one time when they did their uh, initial reunion tour back in, uh, I think it was 2011 or so. And, um, you know, just one of my all-time favorite bands. And from there, I got into bands like uh, my first heavy music concert was P.O.D. and Project 86 and the Supertones of all people. That's back when they used to put different bands of different styles on the same bill. Those were fun times. And, uh, yeah, and then developed my own band and discovered some, some heavier things and went from there. What, um, you know, what was it like for you growing up? Was music part of the household? Like, was that a thing that was around? Were instruments around in the household? No, no, not not at all. Um, that's why I say, you know, my first uh, first introduction to music was sort of just what was popular in the community, I guess. You know, country music, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, you know, the stuff that was big in the mid-90s, um, early 90s when I was growing up. Michael Jackson, I remember getting Boys to Men on cassette tape, and I remember getting, uh, um, what was it I can't even remember now, but I, oh yeah, MC Hammer. I remember getting MC Hammer, you know. But I didn't, I didn't care about those things deeply. They were just sort of what was popular at the time. My parents are not musical. They don't, they don't play any instruments. As a matter of fact, they've never really seen me play an instrument other than um, probably a video, and then realizing, oh, I don't want to watch this because I can't stand the music. Um, so it's not. We know we were not a musical family. We're still not a musical family. Um, my kids, I think, will grow up with a much more music-focused uh, brain. Um, you know, my son already has a little cassette tape thing that we've taught him how to make his own recordings. Um, just, you know, just singing into the cassette microphone. He'll go into the room, his room sometimes, and come out with four or five little songs that he made up. So, Wow. I mean, with um, with your household, I mean, was, was music that you were into and you started getting into the heavier thing, was that seen as a bit obscure because were you a faith um, household growing up? Uh, yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I, I jumped straight, I jumped straight into the deep end as well. Um, you know, I didn't start out as somebody playing acoustic guitar at church and, um, you know, then start a, a rock band and then slowly worked my way up from rock to punk and punk to heavy metal and death metal. No, I just, I went straight from not playing any music at all. I was, I was in choir, I sang in the choir at, uh, in high school, but you know, that's, that does you know, a lot of people in the choir and it doesn't really amount to much, um, other than they were looking for an easy class that they could pass. Um, you know, but I sang in the choir, but then just straight from there to being over at a friend's house and they were jamming and he wanted to start a band. He played drums and uh, had, a, had some friends over and I sort of listened in and from there just kind of accidentally found myself messing around with their music. And they were listening to bands like Zayo and Living Sacrifice and Blindside and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. What about what about heavy music drew you in though? I mean, because it's quite it's quite a shift to suddenly jump in the deep end. You know, obviously you're around it because yeah. your friends are playing it. But what actually drew you into this intense, loud? I mean, we can also say it's pretty obnoxious. It's really full on. Yeah, I think uh, I think for me, it. Um, I never, I was never one to get into the heavy music because I was rebellious 
or because I was angry, um, which I know a lot of people, that was sort of their teenage angst or whatever. They got involved in punk rock or heavy music. I, I always saw it as more of a uh, musical variety thing. You know, I, I was so impressed by the drummers, how fast they could play and, you know, their technical ability and the guitar players, how they could shred, you know, solos all over the place. Um, to me, it was, you know, metal struck me as, um, you know, music for intelligent people. <laughs> um, it struck me as sort of classical music, but with electricity, um, you know, and uh, and so that's what drew me to it. So then I, I, I went quickly from, from getting into the heavy music to into more progressive bands. So I, I really got into bands like Dream Theater and Symphony X and, you know, bands that were very technical and lots of musical things going on. So that was always my appeal. And what about what about bass? I mean, what drew you to that? Was it, you know, did you want to do drums? You know, you're saying you were fascinated by the drums or was there guitars? I mean, what was the process for you with learning and deciding which instrument to kind of focus in on? You know, uh, it's my musical journey begins entirely by accident. Just like I said, you know, messing around with the band on vocals because one of the vocals at the time, one of the guys who was doing vocals messing around in my friend's basement, he was he wasn't there, and I sort of took the microphone and thought, well, I'll give this a shot. And um, and then same with the bass guitar. We had a bass player um, back when it began. Actually, had a couple different bass players. So for for a while, I was just a vocalist, and then. At one point, a uh, bass player dropped out and moved away, and I sort of thought, well, what if maybe I could do both? You know, and I picked up a bass, and I had never played an instrument in my life, and uh, sort of learned how to play as I, you know, on the go. Um, and yeah, and uh, and it kind of, it, I guess it came somewhat naturally, but in the on the back side of that now you know 20 years later i can look back and say that's not the right way to learn because you know you miss a lot of the foundations um sort of like being thrown into a thrown into a sports game you know without understanding the rules of the game but you just look at what everyone else is doing and, and try to keep up um so i uh you know i've had a lot of backfill that i had to do learning um, you know, putting music theory that I knew from choir class and from I sang in college as well and, um, and things like that, putting music theory together with the bass guitar that I learned um, entirely as a necessity. So. Yeah, but it's it, that's crazy because you look at the, the music along the way, it's not, um, it's very technically geared music so you really did just throw yourself in the deep end and went all right let's just go i mean was there was well there... yeah and i mean there's a lot of people out there who can play guitar hero though i mean hmm. so what i mean is it, it, for me it was a very similar thing i was a bass or excuse me i was a, a video gamer i played a lot of video games growing up and you know to, to play the bass guitar was a lot like hand-eye coordination um you don't ever have to push more than one string at a you know more than one note at a time versus <laughs> jumping straight into guitar, um, it would have been a whole lot messier. I'm not trying to, to, to put down the bass um, as an instrument. It's not any less of an instrument, but it's the kind of instrument that if you have hand-eye coordination and you can, uh, you know, you can move your hands to the right places at the right time, you can, you can make it. Um, 
that doesn't necessarily make you a good bass player. Um, to be a good bass player is about a lot of other things, um, which I have, like I said, I've, I've learned a little bit of that on the back end. But at the beginning, for me, it was very much, you know, thinking, okay, where where do my fingers go, and let me memorize that, and okay, that's that's how we play this song. Um, what about yeah? So yeah, no, it, it wasn't easy, but it, you know. I mean, what about um, you know, the start of um, becoming the archetype, which was actually you guys were called something else at the start. I think it was the remnant. I mean, what was it like during that period with school? I mean, were you focused solely on music as a thing, or were you looking at something else as a fallback? Because really, going for it with music is very much a risk, especially back then, but even more now. Well, I um, I was actually in college, finishing my sophomore year when we got um, when we got signed a record contract to Solid State Records. And before that, we basically just played concerts around locally, uh, Battle of the Bands, um, you know, different events that were happening at local venues and stuff. And then we would go every summer to um, people may be familiar with. Um, cornerstone music festival Mm -hmm. which was a uh, which is a very very you know shaping you know most of the bands that came out of that time period and have gone on to do things successfully music were there i mean as lay dying was there norma jean was there living sacrifice was there you know pod was there project six you can't name a band from that style and that scene that weren't at the cornerstone festival so demon hunter was the band that actually discovered us um, at that festival. So we um, we were playing a side stage, a little impromptu, you know, put your name in the hat, and um, and uh, you get to play if they draw your name out of the hat, and we did get to play, and consequently I had lost my voice, and so we played an instrumental set, and that's the only time I ever had lost my voice or ever have played a fully instrumental mm-hmm. set um, in 20 years was that Ooh. time that got us signed, so... Um, that's a, a humbling experience. Um, so yeah, but so yeah, I was in college. I, um, didn't know why I was just in college because that's what my parents told me to do. And, um, so I'm the, I guess I'm the prototypical millennial, um, in the sense that I have two master's degrees and still don't know what the heck I'm going to do with my life. Cause you know, I just went to college cause I was supposed to, and <laughs> you know, that's sort of the that's sort of the millennial complaint, right? You know, we we went to college and still don't have jobs, and um, but I mean, I I you know I, I'm married and have a wife and kids and everything now, and um, you know I do I do okay, um, but still trying to figure it out, and you know still playing music. So but the, that's that time you mentioned around Cornerstone and those bands. That's really when the Christian metal or metalcore or hardcore whatever you want to call it really was booming it was an exciting time labels like solid state face down records were really booming um what was it like for For you what was it like for you in a band that was you know clearly faith driven did you see this as the pinnacle of that time because you look forward to now and now it seems like a lot of bands want to distance themselves from being faith metal Right. Well, there was a, uh, without getting too deep into it, I mean, there was definitely a wave that began sometime in the late 90s 
and crested sometime in the mid 2000s, you know, and then sort of crashed in about 2010, 2012. Um, but you know, between the late nineties until about 2010 to 2012, there was definitely a wave in the underground Christian scene, if you want to call it that based on a lot of churches, um, subsidizing bands and having concerts in their youth rooms and, um, you know, bringing up a lot of bands that may not have been able to get concert opportunities. Um, you know, it's, there's an argument to be made. I'm sure these bands would disagree because they, they would want to say now that they're better than that. But I would say there's an argument to be made that bands like Sayo and Norma Jean and Under Oath and, uh, Azalea Dying and, you know, many other bands from that time period would never have gotten to the, you know, the Devil Wears Prada and so forth and so on, would never have gotten to the humongous success that they have now if they hadn't had that sort of springboard where they were able to go play somewhere. My, you know, Becoming the Archetype was smaller than all of those bands, way smaller than all those bands. And we could go to Cornerstone and play for three or 4,000 people hmm. um, because that's how booming that festival and that scene was. And we could go travel to Birmingham, Alabama, which was next door, is next door to Georgia where we're from, and we could play in a church building for six, seven, eight hundred people when if we went to the local bar in Atlanta, nobody would show up, you know. Mm. Um, so so there was definitely a wave. And then I think, you know, times change and um, a lot of stuff changed. Um, so the streaming thing became so now people don't go to concerts to discover bands as much anymore. They find it on their phone or on the social media and then. Um, you know, a lot of churches that were doing concerts and stuff, either the, the youth pastors left um, or the church started having problems with insurance because mosh pits are breaking out and people are getting hurt. Um, and so the church kind of backed away from that. And the, there's not beneficial anymore necessarily for a band to say, yeah, we're a Christian band. So someone like uh, Under Oath, for instance, probably, I'm not trying to like, spread rumors, but probably didn't want to be considered a Christian band as early as, you know, their first or second album. Hmm. But they sort of stayed in that, they stayed in that arena until they didn't need it anymore. Hmm. Um, well, now, well, now it's not really beneficial is what I'm trying to say. So for a band like Death Therapy, we are a Christian band because I'm a Christian and I write the lyrics and um, so the stuff I sing about comes from a Christian worldview, and that's what I—that's what I would mean by a Christian band. I don't necessarily mean that we preach from the stage. We don't always say anything about our faith from the stage. It just means that the content of what I make—you know—if people are paying attention, they can tell that it comes from a Christian worldview. Um, but it—you know—there's not really a whole lot of a platform for us anywhere to go to to get a launching point. You know, uh, to say, hey, we're a Christian band. Well, the, a lot of the Christian music festivals and stuff that we go to, at least in the United States, they're really, really small now. Mm. Um, or they don't really care about that. They don't care about the heavy music scene anymore. Now, in Europe, it's a bit different. There's a there's a festival we're going to play actually next week in Germany called Christmas Rock Night. And it's a very, very big uh, 
sort of like a cornerstone type, um, you know, size for bands like us. Wolves at the Gate is headlining. It's another great band on Solid State, and and lots and lots of our friends are playing that one. So that that's a big one. But um, yeah, especially in the United States, that that whole scene that drove all those bands sort of dead now. Yeah, but it also seemed like a time when it was it wasn't a dirty word, and it feels like now a shame. Right. It's a shame that a lot of bands like Under Oath are getting away from it because they think it's a dirty word. They think it's not something they want to be associated with, whether that's based off their own beliefs or whether they just think it tarnishes their name. Because back in those days, the bands might have been faith based, but the music was just outstanding like and they still are i mean like death therapy yourself and you know wolves at the gate all of these bands demon hunter still great music but it really felt like there was a massive influx in those early years those early 2000s i think well you know i think it's kind of natural um if you i think if you were i've never seen anyone do this study but i think if you did a if you did a study of the average 18 year old who grows up in church and youth group and um, how their life changes between then and when they turn 30 and the average band who starts as a Christian band when the kids are 18 and where they end up spiritually by the time they're all in their thirties, I would say there's probably a, the curves are probably equal as far as, you know, the majority of people, change their worldview dramatically after 18. Um, so a lot of those bands were young. They just came out of youth group. Um, you know, they, they had an opportunity to really launch quickly into the music scene. And then by the time they got to be 25, they didn't really believe that stuff anymore. And they stuck with it until it became not beneficial is what I'm saying. Hmm. And then now... So now it comes across as a dirty word because they want, they almost want to retroactively point back and go, yeah, yeah, you know, that that was just a really lame thing that we used to be, and to be that thing is not cool. Um, you know, it's, and it's, I mean, to a certain extent, I I get it because you wouldn't, if you're a if you're a business person, let's say you run a a grocery store, you you know to say, well, we're a Christian grocery store. I mean, even a place like Chick-fil-A, which is a very famous, you know, company, they're not a Christian restaurant, although they are associated with Christianity because of their founders. They don't, they don't call themselves a Christian restaurant, you know? Um, so for a band to call itself a Christian band in a lot of people's minds is to cheapen the art, um, to sort of say, I guess what I'm saying is I under, I understand I don't think it's right because I think there is, I think you should take the art for whatever it is. I mean, U2, U2 is not a Christian band by what they would say they are. Right. But I mean, clearly a lot of their music has come from been shaped by a Catholic worldview. Mm. Um, so <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, so I guess what I, what I mean by that is to say, so if you're, a, if, if you're a band who wants to label yourself Christian, it can get viewed with the t- people turning up their nose because they almost, I think they think, Oh, you're looking for a free pass. Mm. You're looking for, you're looking for us to, to say, Oh, okay, well, 
you may not be that good, but hey, you love the Lord, so we'll we'll go ahead and let you play anyway. Um, but the thing is, that used to kind of work, but it doesn't really work so much anymore. Um, but the fact that it used to be that way, as why I say I understand it. There are a lot of bands that kind of got a chance because the church was supporting them, and they really weren't that good. Hmm. Um, <laughs> um, now, most of them died off because they weren't good, but my point is, I guess I can see the point. I can in the in the secular general market music, you don't say, "Oh, well, we're a you know we're a Buddhist band," <laughs> because there's not a there's not a crop of Buddhists out there who are likely to support your career. A lot of people who will say we're a Christian band, it's viewed as like the only reason you're doing that is so you can make money off of the Christians. Mm. Um, mm. If that makes any sense, and that and to a certain, I mean. Look at Kanye West. That's what people are accusing Kanye West of doing right now. Uh, well, oddly enough, it's Christians who are accusing him of doing that, you know, saying, oh, he's just claiming he's a Christian and he put out this Christian rap album. And why are they saying, well, because he's, he's trying to make money off the Christian. You see what I'm saying? Mm, I so, yeah, I see exactly I, what you're saying. I, it's, yeah. I think, yeah, I think people I think people are just suspicious of that um, in the same way that if we were to call ourselves a, a Donald Trump band, <laughs> or something, people would be like, oh my gosh, why would you do that? Because now you've alienated half of your your fans who don't like him, and what are you trying to do, appeal to the crazy Donald Trump supporters? We're not a Donald <laughs> Trump fan, by the way. But um, but my point, my point is, it's always been popular in the secular world to be anti-God and be anti-government and be anti-all of those things. So then to step in and be the opposite of that is uh, is seen as somehow suspicious. I think. How was it? Well, I mean, what's it like within the the Christian world being in a form of music that is normally kind of labelled satanic or evil? I mean, are you you know you've got this thing where you're trying to win over the secular people to show that look, it doesn't matter about my faith. I'm still playing good music. <laughs> But then what's it also like with people of the same faith? Are you, are you also finding that they're pushing back on you saying, you know, you really shouldn't have imagery like, you know, skulls or whatever, or you really shouldn't be that aggressive? I mean, is it a, is it a difficult thing playing this music as a Christian? Uh, I mean, it's, it has its obstacles. Death Therapy is a band that sort of rides on the fence. You know, we have, we have the word death in our name. We have a lot of songs and imagery that sort of are darker and talk about suicide and struggles and things like that. And so there are some avenues that are closed off to us. Um, you know, if we were doing it for money and for the Christian uh, support, we definitely didn't choose the right style <laughs> of music. Um, you know, there, I mean, there's an argument to be made that some, some Christian hip-hop artists and Christian rock stars and Christian worship leaders really do make millions of dollars, you know, just selling to Christians. Um, and I, I don't begrudge those people either. I'm just saying, uh, yeah, you're, to be a heavy metal dude and, and a Christian, to, you know, to be known as a Christian band, whether you want to be or not, is uh, it can be a little bit of a limiting label, which is why you see certain bands, you know, someone like... Uh, under oath trying to shed that label because I, you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't want to speculate 
but you know they just went out this year they went out on tour with corn and um and uh allison chains and now the guys and a couple of the guys in corn might be christian right but i can almost promise you that the person who books all of the tours for allison chains and um corn and stuff those type of people they don't work with christian bands like mm. <laughs> they that, that's not that's not in their world of things that they work with so i think there's a level at which if you're a band like under oath and you want to get on those kind of tours you know you need to play the game a little bit um or you need to at least say hey we're you know we're not going to stigmatize your tour however you know there's a uh, you know there's some bands that break through and they can do both. I mean, Skillet kind of does both. Um, you know, they go out on tour with bands like Breaking Benjamin and Under Oath and you know, whoever else. So I don't know. It's, it's just a weird world. I, I would like to think that in the aftermath of the Christian music scene dying out, um, so, so to speak, I would like to think that the, the playing field is more level now. Um, but there's, you know, the stream, the advent of streaming music happened at basically the same time as the death of the Christian music scene. So it's kind of a double whammy if you're a if you're a new band and you're a band that sort of gets hit with the label that oh well they're just a Christian band quote unquote. It can it can really make it hard in 2019 to to get a leg up. So um, yeah, you know, we're we're just I, I'm just trying my best to write the best music I can. And it's going to sound like it sounds. It's going to, you know, it's going to have the lyrics it has. I'm not trying to make, you know, I can't make everybody happy. So I'm just going to write what I want to write and we'll see where it goes from there. So, well, you look at, you look at, let's go back and have a look and talk about that kind of music that, you know, you have produced along the way, all the way up to death therapy. And it's even at the start of becoming the archetype and you look now to death therapy, it's always been, you know, a nice way, and I mean it as a compliment. It's unique. It's not. Um, it's not boxed standard, if that makes sense. Because you look at the first release under "Becoming the Archetype," "Terminate Damnation." It was at the time. Um, it was a bit different. It was metalcore, but then it had death metal, and then it had like progressive sounds. Um, it was really a mixed bag of tricks. Um, how did that come about or, and was that just by chance that there was all of this different stuff going in? Yeah, a lot of it's all just been by chance. I mean, I, um, with becoming the archetype, it was more intentional. We wanted to try to write music that was technical and metal and sounded kind of like the bands that we liked. And so we drove as hard as we could to, to be progressive all the time and, with Death Therapy, I've written music very much from a stream of consciousness sort of um, position. So I just, whatever comes out, comes out. Now, I've already done two records at this point, so I have a little bit better understanding of what, of what, I'm, of what I'm trying to do. And, um, you know, so moving forward, maybe it'll, it'll be a little more intentional as to what it sounds like. But... Uh, so far, it's just been sort of, you know, this. every song is different, and uh, just because that's how it comes out. What about um, one of the, my favorite things with uh, BTA was uh, Clifton? Um, can you, <laughs> can you uh, describe to people who was Clifton um, and where it come about? 
Yeah, we uh, we did a tour. I don't remember what year. I'm terrible with with those type of things. But we did a tour called the Bring Your Own Beard Tour, not beer, beard with a D. And uh, and Ryan Clark, the singer from Demon Hunter, uh, designed that image with it was a skull with a beard on it, um, which at the time I don't believe anyone had ever done before. Now it's very common if you were to search for bearded skull on the internet, you'll find mastodon has one and all these other bands have one it's very common now you can even find generic t-shirt clothing companies that have skulls with beards on them beards are very in vogue now um but um at that time i guess that was maybe mid 2000s um it was uh it was ryan clark's idea i thought it was genius and so we sort of made clifton we named him clifton because we had a friend who uh we had a friend whose name was travis but we found out that Travis's real name was Clifton, and we thought it was funny. So we said, "Well, we're going to name our mascot after you." So we we named uh, we named him Clifton, and it stuck. And he became our sort of he came with everything that we did um, <laughs> from the, from then on. Now, like I say, you know, now, at this point, I don't know that if we tried to resurrect that image as as associated with BTA, I don't know that anyone would draw that connection. You know, it's a very common. Um, thing now yeah i remember the image I, of the beard, skull with a beard i remember there was a tour as well it was something about bringing your beard something about a wig something about a mustache right bring your own beard yeah there's there were lots of lots of those kinds of things well i mean you were you were and still are a man of a beard i mean it's you've, you've got you got <laughs> yeah but I've, i i have a beard and compared to some people it's a little bit bigger but there's I one of the drummers that plays with me um, from time to time. He has a very large beard. It's it's very long. Goes down about way halfway through his stomach, and um, and I you know I tell him I joke to people. They're like, well, why isn't your beard as long as his? I'm like, you know, I can't even try to keep up with that anymore. I used to be the guy with the beard, um, <laughs> but now I'm just the guy. <laughs> you know, so that's the thing. I'm just the singer. I'm not the guy with the beard. Plus, like I say, beards are more in beards are more in vogue now in, in 2006 all of the people in the hardcore metalcore scene were clean shaven and had emo haircuts and tight pants and uh beards were not very normal now beards are every everyone's got tight pants and emo haircuts and a beard <laughs> you know so it's uh you know anyway what were the um, first few albums like for for you guys, BTA, with reception, um, Terminate Damnation and Physics of Fire? Did they really give you guys quite a launch pad and a lot of momentum at the time? Uh, I mean, a little bit. We, you know, we did a we did a tour with Demon Hunter in two thousand seven. That was uh, was probably the biggest tour that we ever did, and. Um, you know, BTA never really took off per se. I know to a lot of people, that's hard hard to believe. But we always were sort of hoping and fighting that we would find a way to get onto a tour, and we just never could. Um, other than really that Demon Hunter tour, and um, so BTA kind of we developed a fan base that was very dedicated, but it was never very large. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean. When I left the band in 2011, it was because I, you know, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and I was going to have to go figure out, you know, some way to make money, <laughs> something I couldn't just, you know, go out on the road and, with friends and eat fast food and sleep in a van all the time. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, there was momentum, but it was never, you know, August Burns Red was on that same tour with Demon Hunter and they were opening up the tour and we were sharing equipment, us and them. We were the opening bands each night, us and August Burns Red. And well, you know, you know where they are nowadays. I mean, they probably tour down your way, you know, twice a year and they, they've been nominated for five or six Grammys in a row and they've sold millions and millions of records. And, um, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, that's one direction that it could go. And, BTA sort of went the other direction. <laughs> it must have, it must have been very difficult, um, understandable that you left, but it must have been difficult for you to do. Did you think because life was going in the direction it was that that was it for music? Because you know, before we get into it, there is obviously things that happened afterwards. But at the time, did you think, okay, music is definitely on the back burner now. No more music. Now focus yeah. on life. Well, I mean, most people, if you, if you would talk to anybody who's been in my situation like that, they're going to, they'll give you the same answer. And that is, um, I didn't ever want, I never wanted to quit playing music, but I knew that I couldn't play music as a full-time job anymore. So, um, for some people that means they quit and they go home and they never, they never do music anymore. Uh, and for other people, it means that they go home and they, they do something else with music, but it's very, you know, they, they produce bands or they record stuff every once in a while. But the, the point is, the band, when I left, they still wanted to tour. They still wanted to keep, you know, doing things full time. And I was I was not going to be able to do that anymore. And um, so I, it was it was hard, yes. I would have liked it if the band had said, hey, let's slow down and just not tour as much. But um I think, you know, in the end, they put out a record after I left. I think it's a really good record. A lot of BTA fans are torn about that record. Um, excuse me, because I wasn't on it. But, um, you know, that's uh, that's neither here nor there. But point being, you know, Death Therapy was an opportunity for me to say, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna do music again, but I'll, you know, I'll do it at my own pace. And, um, and, and that's part of why it's a two-person band. It's not just because, you know, hey, I was trying to be, cool and only have a two-person band it's because the more people you get involved the more people you need to have on the same schedule and um you know you you know what i'm saying so it was basically my way of saying yeah i really do want to do music i've still got a lot left to say and a lot of music that i like to write um honestly if i if i had a way to financially support myself and do music full-time i would because i've got all kinds of ideas for new albums and books and um and you know all sorts of things uh but it's just not to be because there's just not enough money there you know um so i've got to spend three quarters of my time trying to put food on the table for the family and i've got two kids and a few rabbits and some (laughs) and a dog (laughs) well i mean also when you know when you're really getting death therapy off off the ground you know, you mentioned earlier about the the new landscape of the industry. That's also probably part of what's making things so difficult now for for not just yourself, but for other bands, is the change in the landscape. I mean, now everything is geared to streaming or, you know, clicks and likes and stuff. It's no longer about, you know, putting out a CD and shipping as many copies as you can because that's a pretty hard thing to do in the now landscape. Right, it is. And I mean... So something I realized today when I was um, 
you know, looking at uh, just a few dates and stuff. I mean, to me, to me, death therapy has been around since 2015 when I uh, when I sort of conceived the idea and began doing things. What? But in reality, for most of the world who even knows about death therapy, which is not most of the world, but for the people who do, they didn't come into the knowledge of death therapy until sometime closer to January of 2017. So less than three years um, removed from that now. Um, you know, so, so the band is still really in its infancy by all, you know, by everyone's measurements as far as the music industry goes. So, I, you know, it is a different game as far as, you know, the, with the way streaming works. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, business landscapes change. You know, people people don't go to the people don't go to the coal mines as much. I mean, they still do in certain places, but um, people don't work on the assembly lines as much. They tend to work now more in in offices doing uh, whatever they the, whatever they call it the IQ economy. You know, more intellectual economy, intellectual property economy, and um, service economy. You know, things change, but it, it's still the same in the sense that you have to work hard and you have to you know, try to be the best you can be at what you're doing. And, um, you know, and, it, and it, the saying is still true. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, you know, I'm not very well connected, but, um, you know, you got to keep working until you meet the right people. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, also, I think something that, you know, listeners, whether they know death therapy or not, they will by the end of this conversation. And one thing that you mentioned about the band is that it's a two-piece. So... You mentioned how lightly that. Well, that okay. Hold on before you go. Before you go on, that is yes and no. Okay, so okay. Yes, death therapy is a two piece traditionally. Um, however, the key ingredient of death therapy is not how many members. The key ingredient of death therapy, at least so far in the band's history, is that we don't have a guitar player. So um, I do perform. I have this year, at least in 2019, I have been performing with a keyboard player. Because keyboards are a large part of our sound. If you listen to our record, you can't avoid hearing, you know, there's a lot of electronic industrial keyboard elements. So uh, I've been playing with a keyboard player a lot this year. And, um, but yes, I mean, it has been a two-piece band. Um, We can still, and we still do occasionally perform as a two-piece band. Sort of like, um, I don't know how many people are familiar with, uh, um, there's a band called, um, I'm just about to lose their name. The band called Royal called? Blood. <laughs> well, there's a band called Royal Blood, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Um, Bl- the Black Keys. Ah, yes. There's a band called The Black Keys who, for you know, for 18 years or so, I think, toured as a two-piece band. But now, when they, you know, they've gotten, of course, they're a multi-platinum band, but they they perform now with a full band and uh, you know, in tow. My my thing is. I just want to make the best music I can. And if it means I need a keyboard player, if it means I eventually add a guitar player, we'll see. But I think the key ingredient of death therapy is that there's no guitar. So if people, if people are just coming now to, you know, to hear death therapy for the first time, they'll probably be surprised when they listen to the record to realize there are no guitars on the record. There's no tricks. It's just a bass guitar with a lot of fuzz and distortion effects and, things like that but it's uh it's and there's no doubling i didn't record two bass lines i recorded one bass line um so um maybe that'll uh pique some people's interest and also maybe it'll help some people who heard it and thought huh it sounds a little weird to me help them understand (laughs) that's what that's what's going on there so when they see us live 
a lot of people are very confused. They think, oh, well, are you faking it? Do you have the guitars playing through the speakers? Or, you know, I'm like, no, that's just my <laughs> effects on my bass guitar. Well, I mean, it gives it gives quite a unique appearance live, but also on record. I mean, it also must be exciting for you cre- uh, creatively because what you can write is boundless. I mean, what you can create is boundless. There's no limits to what you can do. It's all just where's your imagination can go. Right, and that's my and that's my goal. I mean, one of my musical heroes is Devin Townsend, and Devin Townsend has done everything from play solo with an acoustic guitar to travel with a circus that you know performs on stage with him with animals and people on stilts and all kinds of other things. And uh, I would love to do all of those things. You know, that all sounds like a blast to me. I'd love to find a way to let, get Death Therapy a tour where it could just be me, um, and then I'd love to do a Death Therapy tour where there's me and about you know, 15 other people and we just put on a giant presentation. So, um, that's, I think that's one of the exciting things about what I'm doing right now musically is that I can kind of call the shots in that regard. I mean, it sounds like, sounds a little bit like I have an ego and maybe I do that, but I, to me, it's more practical. I know that if I were to bring a bunch of people into the band full time with me, I would be at their mercy and, or they would be disappointed in me and, you know, if I can't do this opportunity or that opportunity, if I decide I don't want to tour, you know, next year, I just want to focus on writing. You understand what I'm saying? I, I guess what I mean is death therapy is my way of doing music in a, you use the cliche word, a sustainable way. Well, it is. And, and also, you know, to, as you said, you started thinking about it around 2015 and you're now two releases in. That's also got to be exciting for you. You know, you get the first one done, the storm before the calm around the start of 2017. And then this year you released Voices. That's also got to be exciting because it shows that you can produce this music the way you're doing it. And what's what's that like for you? Do you feel like, do you go back and listen to either of those and do you feel satisfied or is it you are perfectionist and you listen back and you go, look, that's really good for this part, but I want to change it for this part. So I'll do different on the next release. Well, I mean, that's tricky to say. Um, For me, it's usually that when I get something recorded, I kind of have to move on from it. Um, Obviously Hmm. we still play it live and things like that, but I tend to move on from it because, I think of recording those recordings and those songs are really they're a snapshot of where I was at at that point in my life um, and in my songwriting. So um, once I've sort of said, you know, it's sort of like a person you you know asking a president or whoever, you know, do you go back and read your speeches that you you know that speech you gave was a really famous speech. Have you gone back and read it? You know. If it was an authentic speech that they truly spoke from the heart, they probably haven't gone back to read it, you know, um, because it's just that was that's what they where they were. You know, a lot of people, I guess, they don't write their own speeches, so that's probably a bad example. But um, <laughs> all I was trying to say is, yeah, it's uh, I don't tend to go back a lot. Sometimes I do go back, and when the beauty is when I do go back, it's like I'm listening to it with fresh ears mm. because I moved I moved on from where that was. You know, and, and now I'm a different person, which we talked about a little bit before. Um, now it's like I'm a different person yeah, getting to hear and, and I can go, hey, yeah, I'm a fan of this. You know, I really like this. So 
stuff. Um, it's kind of cool. And some of it I can listen back to, and I'm like, oh, gosh, this is a little scatterbrained and a little weird and whatever else. Um, but, but yeah, for the most part, it's, that's where it's at. You know, whatever I write next will probably just be a picture of where I'm at, you know, musically at this point. And, you know, maybe that'll be a little more rock and roll. Maybe it'll be a little more industrial. Maybe it'll be a little bit more metal. Who knows? You know, maybe all three of them combined, but, uh, which is probably what will end up happening. But, um, but that's got to be, that's got to be exciting that you're, you're, you are someone that acknowledges that everything is different from 99 when you started to 2019 everything's a little bit different like we spoke about earlier right. you know it, it it changes it moves it um emotions right. change um that's got to be exciting and also what's got to be exciting for you is you know i think with death therapy lyrically it seems very I don't like the word confronting, but it is. It, it's very honest. It feels like it's an outpour and it's opening people's eyes to some things that sometimes aren't really spoken about. Right. No, for sure. It's uh, it's very, uh, that's the goal, you know, for me to, to write not just the music, but the lyrics as a stream of consciousness. So, you know, whatever I've been struggling with, whatever I've been going through, and sometimes... Sometimes it's personal and sometimes it's more, you know, putting myself in a frame of mind of, you know, you know, what, what would it be like if I was in this position? Um, and how do I just deal with that honestly? Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's one of the things I love about, about doing death therapy. BTA was much more of a thematic band, you know, the lyrics are about, you know, conquering, you know, civilizations and other things, but, uh, in big epic spiritual battles, but, uh, death therapy is more personal. Uh, at least it has been thus far, and I think it will probably continue to be. Um, so yeah, that's you know, it is, you know, it's um, it's challenging, which is fun and exciting because it's it's just me, you know, um, which is hard with death therapy or excuse me with BTA. I always had you know three or four other people um, involved in writing, you know, bouncing ideas off. With with death therapy, it's largely just been me. Um, but but in the way in even though that's challenging, it's also, um, you know, it, it affords a certain level of, of honesty and personal nature, I think, when people are listening to it. You know, it's kind of a two-part question. One, uh, where do you see the record industry today as an artist? Do you see it as a easy thing to navigate, or do you find it as kind of a challenging thing to navigate? Because things have changed, so where do you see it for an yeah. artist? Is it in your hands, or is it out of your hands? Well, yeah, I mean, we talked about that a little bit earlier and, and I think I would reiterate that, you know, it's the same, it's the same game, but the pieces have shifted around a little bit. You know, you, you've got to work hard. You've got to try to write the best music you can and, and you got to try to get it in front of people. But the way that you get it in front of people is completely different now than, than how it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, really. So, um, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's, it's only harder in the sense that the music industry is more oversaturated, I think. Mm. Um, so it's not that the industry itself has gotten harder. It's just that there's so many more bands. Everybody, everybody's got a, a Spotify. Everybody's got a mixtape. Everybody's got a SoundCloud where they can upload their music and they, they can do it on their laptop. They don't even have to have a, uh, you know, an instrument or know how to, to play anything or buy an instrument. And they don't have to invest anything, really. They can just make it largely for free. 
Yeah, so, it's a it's a very uh, different so landscape. Yeah, I would say it's, hard, it's harder in that regard, but uh, it's easier in the sense that you know you don't have to get out on the road and slog around to reach people. You can, uh, you know, I remember doing tours. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have GPS. We just you know we pulled out a map and we tried to find our way there. But um, but um, you know now I can just reach. We can reach people on their on their phones. Like so, they don't they don't even have to come to us. Uh, we don't have to go to them. They're right there. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an exciting and different time. Um, Jason, we wrap things up with a quick little quick fire segment. Um, we'll get you done and dusted and out of here, and it's called Pick Your Poison. What I do is I give you two options, and you pick your favorite of the two. Okay. All right. Do you prefer a pizza or a burger? Mm, burger. Uh, ribs or brisket? Brisket. Soft taco or hard taco? Uh, I'm a soft taco guy, I guess. Smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Crunchy, always. Coffee or tea? Tea. But I like sweet teas. I'm from Georgia. Okay. Do you like to cook at home or dine <laughs> out? Uh, dining out. Uh, would you rather go to the beach or go to the snow? Snow. In the mountains. Uh, you a cat or a dog person? Dog. Um, are you a Star Star Trek or Star Wars? I'm a Star Wars person, I guess. Okay. South Park or Simpsons? South Park. Uh, Slayer or Pantera? Pantera, definitely. Uh, Meshuggah or Opeth? Opeth, no doubt. Um, Metallica or Megadeth? Megadeth. Okay, and we've got a couple left. Where do you like stage dives or mic grabs? Hmm, mic grabs. Okay, when you go to a show, do you watch it from the pit or do you watch it from the sound desk? If you'd asked me 15 years ago from the pit, now more from the sound desk with my arms folded. <laughs> like an old guy. Uh, tour for the rest of your life or record music for the rest of your life? Record music for the rest of my life. And the last one, if you were to get your all-time favorite album, would you rather it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Probably CD. Ooh, okay. I'm not a I'm not a full blown I'm not a full blown digital guy. Um, so I do like having the booklet and um, and and all of that stuff. And I'm just ne- I. I have some vinyl, but I'm not really a vinyl geek either. So I'm sort of in the middle. So yeah, I'm probably if I could have my favorite favorite album, CD. All right, nice. Um, Jason. Or cassette. Oh, or cassette. Well, the cassette falls apart. I those remember cassette, those cassette booklets were kind of fun. They were, but but the problem with the cassette is when it got chewed in the player. That was a problem. Right. Um, Jason. Thank you so much, dude. Really, really appreciate this. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right. Thanks, Jason. Have a good rest of your day. Appreciate it. Thank you. You too.
So that was my chat with Jason of Death Therapy and formerly of Becoming the Archetype. At the end there, the first track you heard was by Becoming the Archetype. It's called Epic of War. That comes off the band's album, The Physics of Fire. The second track you heard was also by Becoming the Archetype, titled No Fall Too Far, which is from the band's album, Terminate Damnation. The third song was by Death Therapy. That track's called Slow Dance with Death which is from the band's first release called The Storm Before the Calm. And the final track you heard there was also by Death Therapy, titled My Defiance, which is from their most recent album titled Voices. Now's the part of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So if you enjoyed the conversation or you enjoyed any of the music at the end there, now's your chance. Get online, stream it, download it. If you're into physicals, Grab yourself a CD, grab yourself a vinyl. If you're into merchandise, get online. See if you can get yourself a hoodie, a shirt, or some moss shorts. All of this stuff helps Jason keep going and helps the projects he loves to exist. I need to take this moment to thank Jason again. Thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 134 done dusted or wrapped up locked away for this week guys if you're a first time listener thank you for tuning in i hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes if you're a regular listener thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks this time of the show is when i remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners so If you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.